Many of us, I think, have a story like this one to tell. It's the story of a friend of a friend, or a sister, a brother, a distant relation, a someone, not you, who knows or has met, rented a room to, or sold a candy bar to, or was nearly the victim of, one of those monsters that we read about, hear about, a bit player in a true crime story, girl on a beach, man in a store, a person clutching their bag as they hurry past room 108. My friend Eleanor, Ellie, for example, Ellie is the daughter of a small-town sheriff, and she inherited her father's investigative bent, this need to chase and probe and question and pick apart stories, looking for flaws and inconsistencies, and grappling with the limitations of language and memory. She's also a gossipy little thing, well acquainted with the friends of the friends of the brothers and sisters and other relations throughout her state's western enclave. Her story, one of the many true crime stories tucked away inside her archive, goes like this. July, July 14th, 1974. My friend Mary was in the parking lot when this guy came up to her asking for help with his... He didn't say boat, he said something else, but I can't think of what. Anyway, he says to Mary, will you help me with my whatever? And Mary thought whatever he said sounded kind of weird or like kind of iffy. And she's like, I, I don't know about that. So she said, no, no, I can't because, and you know, she made up some excuse, but that guy was Ted Bundy. Yes. And can you, can you imagine what would have happened if she had gotten in his car? I can, of course. I've seen the pictures of what little remained of Janice Ott and Denise Nasland at Issaquah. I can picture quite well how Ellie's friend would have ended up. These true crime tales graze our lives from a couple of degrees of separation. Safe, but not too safe. Safe enough that our eyes still brighten and we get a small thrill because... We have a story to share, not a news brief, not something that everyone is privy to, but something vaguely personal, safe because we don't picture ourselves skeletonized and dismembered on the side of a mountain because we are not the near miss, yet close enough to reveal our own vulnerabilities and maybe, to make us think, that there but for the grace of God go I. And the story that follows, this is my friend of a friend, sister, brother, other relation. This is my such story. Dare. Not as in throwing down a challenge or rising to meet one, but as in the acronym for Drug Abuse Resistance Education the well-meaning but nugatory program that sent officers into classrooms to dole out some Nancy Reagan and to teach kids to just say no to drugs. Our D.A.R.E. officer was Officer Don, 
a pot-bellied forty-something with a graying mustache tucked above a light-hearted smile, and a pair of kind eyes glistening behind wire-rimmed spectacles. The best teachers, in my opinion, are the storytellers, the ones that drift seamlessly into seemingly unrelated tangents, like that one about the medical student expelled for stealing body parts on Halloween that cropped up in American history somehow. They contain a moral or a life lesson, typically. Don't steal, don't speed, don't be a dumbass. Couched between math equations. Officer Don was a storyteller, and his tale, albeit a compressed, less detailed version of the one that follows, began in 1984, about 11 p.m. on Sunday, September 23rd, two teenage boys pulled into a gas station, a gas station that had already closed up shop for the night, parked their car, and an officer with the Deer Lodge, Montana Police Department steered his cruiser into the space behind them. They were polite, the officer would later say, the skinny blonde identified himself as 14-year-old Ted Gibson, and his friend, a taller, slightly unkempt kid with scraggly whiskers, was 15-year-old Michael Horvath. And they were, from, of all places, Butte, Montana. Butte was a notorious rough-and-tumble mining town to the southeast of Deer Lodge. Once widely hailed as the Gibraltar of Unionism and the richest hill on earth, Butte's glory days were fading fast by 1984, on its way from being a copper behemoth to the largest Superfund site in the United States. Rumors ran throughout the state that the Butte High's football team had to practice on gravel because grass refused to grow in the polluted soil and the tap water would, at worst, kill you, and, at best, would make you glow in the dark, as though Butte were Gotham's sister city, chock-full of comic book heroes and villains. And perhaps that's the reason, assuming that this officer was even able to see the blood spattered on Michael's clothing. Perhaps that's why he wouldn't have thought much of it. The two teens would be back at home and drinking Butte waters again soon enough, but for now, the officer ran the license plate, and finding that no warrants were attached to the car, he directed the pair to an open gas station down the street. The boys continued northwest, and about two and a half hours later, they caught the attention of yet another patrolman, and like his counterpart— Officer Doug Chase of the Missoula, Montana Police Department ran the license, and when no warrants came back, he let the car proceed without further inquiry. Unbeknownst to Officer Chase, as he was running the license plate, Sheriff Bob Butorovich of the Butte Silverbow County Sheriff's Office was in the midst of a battle with a faulty teletype machine and a mulish AT&T worker who insisted that it wasn't his responsibility to fix the thing. It turned out that it was, but it would take almost four hours to sort that mess out. 
Meanwhile, Michael and Ted fueled up at a gas station about an hour down the road, then drove off without paying. They were still apparently low on funds when they rolled into Superior, Montana, two hours later. A little restaurant called The Day's Drive had just opened for breakfast, and Michael and Ted went inside, produced a gun, and filled their coffers with $130. Then, shortly after 5 a.m., the teletype machine in Butte working at last, Sheriff Putorovich sent out the attempt to locate on Michael Eugene Horvath and Ted Lloyd Gibson. Ted and Michael had first met one another three years earlier at Greeley Elementary in 1981. That was Michael's first year in Montana. His father had just died, and Michael and his mother, Mary, had moved there from Wisconsin for a fresh start. Mary would go on to earn her practical nursing license, and the newspaper said that at 61 years old, she was possibly the oldest person to have earned that degree at that time. Ted was a Butte native, who also lived with his older sister Brandy and their mother Mona, who, like Mary, was also a nurse. His parents had divorced in 1973, and his father Jim had relocated to Kellogg, Idaho, and reportedly he rarely saw his kids. I can't speak as to their individual personalities, but superficially, the two families shared much in common. Both women had adult children, born of previous marriages, and both lived in rented trailers and they drove older cars, which was all that they could afford. They worked lawn hours, and Ted and Michael were described as so-called latchkey kids which isn't to say that their mothers didn't love them or didn't supervise them. By all accounts, it was quite the opposite. The boys hit it off almost immediately, and they joined the local Troop 10 Boy Scouts together. The Scouts were helmed by Scout leader Fred Steiner, who would later say that they were nice, obedient kids with mothers who cared about them. A teddy, as Fred called Ted Gibson, had been a well-groomed scout whose uniform was always pressed and who never missed a meeting. My sister went to school with Ted and Michael. She's my other friend of a friend, sister-brother, distant relation. I've tried asking her about them, but she just wrinkles her nose and says, you know, what do you want to know about them for? Or she accuses me of being morbid and stalks off not because she's hiding some deep, dark secret. She's just an older sister, you know? She's a pain in the ass. And my sister was no saint. She likes to pretend, but when my parents brought me home from the hospital, she ran away. Not a proper, like, hop on the bus and pimp yourself out to an L.A. hustler type of run, but a run to the Seven Eleven to mope and drown her sorrows in a slushy kind of run. She was back before nightfall. I ask my mother, my mother's old boss. Everyone remembers the case, vividly. But nobody seems to know too much about the boys or their families. They only remember rumors and uh, things that have got twisted up in time that may or may not be true. 
I will say that I think Ted and Michael were more adventurous than my sister, and it appears that they had longed to be on the open road for quite some time. Before starting out across Montana in a stolen Chevy Malibu, the two boys had been scheduled to appear in juvenile court in the first week in October to answer the charge that they had stolen a motorcycle. Mary Horavath thought that her son had seemed depressed, and she had talked about placing him in a stress unit. In fact, both mothers were thinking of sending their sons to Yellowstone Boys Ranch for psychological testing. Mental health issues may have run in the Gibson family, as Brandy had undergone counseling at Shodare Children's Hospital, which news reports said that Ted may have resented, but they don't say why. According to Officer Don, the boys had started down the wrong path, using drugs and alcohol, which, I mean, it was dare class, so of course they had. Other unconfirmed reports say that Michael got into a fight on Saturday, September 22nd at the Butte Plaza Mall, and afterwards he had run away. Mary had left a note inside their trailer telling Michael to call the Gibson's landline when he got home. At about 9.30 p.m. that same day, Ted and Michael... Mona and Mary, and Ted's 16-year-old sister Brandy, converged at the Gibson trailer. Ted's mother Mona was scheduled to work at St. James Community Hospital at 11 p.m. on Sunday, September 23rd. But the hour came and went, and Mona never arrived. She didn't so much as call to say that she wasn't coming, which just wasn't like her. One of Mona's co-workers called the sheriff's department and requested a welfare check for their absent colleague. When Officer Mark Driscoll first entered Mona's trailer, he noticed blood on the counter, but a family member who had accompanied him inside told him that was nothing unusual, which kind of makes you wonder what this trailer looked like on an average day and nothing else appeared disturbed. But as you, dear listener, know, or really should know by now, the things inside this trailer were not all right. This is, after all, a true crime podcast. And as the officer moved further into the house, they found 16-year-old Brandy Gibson's body folded inside a kitchen cupboard. She had been stripped naked, except for a single stocking, which I don't know if that was a haphazard oversight or if it was done for the effect of making Brandy's body appear even more naked because of what was left rather than what was taken. Her mother, Mona, lay in the bedroom closet, her body poorly concealed under a pile of clothing. She still wore a sweater and a pair of pants, which had been pulled down to her knees. In a separate bedroom, police located Mary Horvath. Her body, also stripped bare, was hidden inside a hollowed-out mattress. Noticeably absent from the scene, Ted and Michael, who were apprehended in Wallace, Idaho, on September 24th, just two days after they had shot and killed 
both their mother's and Ted's sister. While in Idaho awaiting transportation back home, the boys made some statement about how they had killed and hidden the bodies of three more victims, possibly in a cave on the East Ridge, where they spent a lot of time. But all roads point to that being just a stupid lie. A search of their car yielded a pistol and a rifle. One article in the Montana Standard noted that officers found empty pill bottles at the murder scene, which led officers to speculate the boys were using drugs, so maybe Officer Don wasn't entirely off base. The deputy who picked the boys up and ferried them back to Butte reported that they were laughing and joking with each other during the ride. On their booking slips, they indicated that their mothers should be notified in case of emergency before falling asleep shortly after midnight on September 25th. They behaved much the same way during their first court appearance, giggling as though sharing a private joke. Family members reportedly asked Ted if he wanted to attend his mother and sister's funeral, and he replied with a, a fuck no. Judge Mark Sullivan ordered that Ted and Michael undergo a 40-day psychiatric evaluation at Warm Springs State Hospital. As that got underway, a county attorney, Ross Richardson, set about looking for a way to have the case moved out of the juvenile system so that he could try the boys as adults. At that time, no avenue existed under Montana law for a person under the age of 16 to be tried for murder in adult criminal court, and the boys faced a maximum sentence of incarceration until age 21 under the juvenile code. If Mr. Richardson succeeded in having the case transferred, then Michael and Ted would face the death penalty. The prosecutor took his argument to the Montana Supreme Court, but the justices rejected his attempt to circumvent state law. On October 17th, at the request of Michael's attorney, a Judge Arnold Olson issued a gag order and cut the public off from the satiating stream of heartbreak and gore. Now, the judge would have been compelled to reopen the courtroom to public scrutiny if if the defendants had contested the charges. But when December rolled around, Ted and Michael came before the judge and pled guilty to the murders, or rather to being delinquent youths by reason of three counts of homicide, which pretty fucking delinquent, which was the official charge under the juvenile code. And when they pled guilty, the doors to the courtroom remained shut, and nearly everything that the boys said as they confessed to the crimes remains known to only a tight-lipped few. What I can tell you is that before Ted and Michael stripped their victims' bodies, possibly to degrade, possibly to make the murders look like a sex crime, they had shot Mona, Mary, and Brandy a total of 21 times, mostly at close range and mostly in the head. 
Dr. Joan Fath, who performed the autopsies, said one or two of these shots would have been sufficient to effectuate death, and that this was a classic case of overkill. One of the boys had pressed the gun against Mary Horvath's head and had shot her directly between the eyes. This, the story told by the gunpowder residue. And that's the one, that's the shot that you, or at least I, wonder about. I wonder whether she was alive or dead when her killer fired that shot. Wonder did they press the gun to her forehead merely to avoid having to aim, or did they do it to intimidate or to frighten her? Wonder did her son or her son's best friend fire that shot? During his last court appearance, Michael admitted to helping Ted hide the bodies, but he denied firing any of the shots, though evidence indicated both boys had fired into the women's bodies. And when you think about what the cleanup alone must have entailed, the human head is chock full of blood vessels and it bleeds profusely when the skin is breached. They had to clean up all that blood, strip the bodies, hollow out the mattress so that Mary could fit inside, pack up the car, and then go. All of that, and they couldn't have taken an extra 15 minutes to, say, retrieve the bullet casings found strewn throughout the house? Criminal masterminds, they were not. I can also tell you that the pathologist found no indication the women had struggled with their attackers, no, like, torn fingernails or bruised knuckles. But the pathologist did say that either the shooters, the victims, or both were moving when the shots were fired, and it appeared that the killers had inflicted all 21 shots while the women's hearts were still beating. Law enforcement never established a firm motive for the crime. Sheriff Butorovich speculated Mona and Mary had met to discuss how to deal with their sons and how to, you know, basically get them to stop stealing shit. The boys became upset at the thought that their carefree lifestyle was about to end, and they, well, you might say that they shot themselves in the foot. Instead of succumb to a curfew, they landed themselves in a juvenile detention facility for the next six to seven years. According to Psychology Today, there are three types of kids that commit parasite: the severely abused, the mentally ill, and the dangerously antisocial. I found zero information that either boy had been abused. There are some indications of mental illness and of antisocial traits, but I don't think that we can lump them into a category with the limited information that we have available. The psychologist who evaluated Ted and Michael determined that they understood what they had done and the charges against them, but he testified they only understood them as juveniles would, not as adults. Most children only develop abstract reasoning skills around age 11 or 12, 
And while a 14 or 15 year old may comprehend the consequences of firing a gun at a person's head, that is, they understand that firing a bullet into a person's head may end their life, they don't have the life experience and wisdom to acknowledge the full significance of taking a human life. This is according to child psychologist Dr. Charles Lear, speaking to the Great Falls Tribune back in 1985. In general, Lear said, a child bent on killing will understand the act, what death is, but to understand it in a lifetime framework. What will this afternoon mean to me when I'm 63 years old? That is imponderable to a 14-year-old. Following their confessions, Michael and Ted were incarcerated at the Pine Hills School in Miles City, Montana. Michael was released from the facility in February of 1990, and Ted followed four months later. Ted had already transferred to a work furlough program in North Dakota, which was done to allow him time to find a job and to readjust to society. From there, Ted and Michael mostly disappear from the newspaper record. I hunted for them on social media, of course, and I was tempted to contact one of the dozens of Ted Gibsons and Michael Horvaths that I found plotted across the national map, but in the end, I decided against it. I can't even be sure that any of those Ted Gibsons and Michael Horvaths found courtesy of Google are the ones that I'm looking for. They could have changed their names, traveled overseas. They could have gone on to commit other crimes or to lead peaceful lives. They could be dead for all I know. Juvenile court proceedings in Montana are not available to the public, but it's unlikely it would matter if they were, as Ted and Michael's records were probably destroyed back in 2002, in accordance with Montana law, which allows sealed records to be destroyed after 18 years with the consent of the convicted person, the judge, and the county attorney. Thus, the only remaining evidence of the murders lies in the newspaper archives and with personal memory. And, I guess you could say, in, in what happened afterwards. In 1985, this case prompted the Montana legislature to change state law, making it so that juveniles under the age of 16 can now be charged with murder and tried in adult court. Michael and Ted impacted generations of Montanans in ways that they could not possibly have predicted. For example, when my parents found out that my sister was in the same class as and possibly friends with a triple murderer, they pulled her out of public school and they enrolled her in a small parochial institution. As far as I can tell, the only lasting impact of this restrictive education is that she wouldn't take me to see Hocus Pocus because of that whole, like, witches are evil, mistresses of Satan propaganda popularized in the 17th century. She's also a staunch feminist, so, you know, go figure me that one. 
like my parents' spur-of-the-moment decision to circumscribe my sister's education, I wonder how much thought was given to Montana's reactionary legislation and to what it achieved. A study published in 1994, or about 10 years after this case, compared juvenile arrest rates for serious offenses such as murder, robbery, and rape in three states, Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. Now, Idaho at the time already had a statute in place that allowed children to be tried as adults, whereas Montana and Wyoming did not. The study's authors discovered that arrest rates in Idaho for these serious crimes had actually increased after the law was enacted, while arrest rates in Montana and Wyoming had decreased. That is to say, the study found that laws which allow children to be tried as adults have no deterrent effect, a conclusion which has gone on to be supported by other studies on the subject time and again. And juveniles who are tried as adults and who are sent to adult prisons, they have a higher recidivism rate than their counterparts who remain in the juvenile system. And finally, Michael and Ted could not have predicted that one day a DARE officer would tell a classroom full of eager, decidedly ghoulish fifth graders their story as part of his message to keep kids off drugs and that, twenty-odd years later, one of those morbid weirdos would be broadcasting part of their story, and hers, mine, from the discomfort of her bedroom closet. No, of course not, because it was 1984 and podcasts hadn't yet been invented. Because they were 14 and 15, too young with too little life experience to understand the complex course that a person's life takes and how decisions big and small bloom into something unpredictable. In 1986, Ted Gibson had attempted to escape from Pine Hills, an attempt that was thwarted almost before it began after another boy, who was in the facility on a similar charge, blew the whistle on Ted. It appears that Michael was not involved in the escape attempt, and the facility's director said both boys had a long way to go, but Michael seemed to be banking better progress towards rehabilitation than his friend. One other odd tidbit that I uncovered. After Michael was released from Pine Hills, his former roommate, a man named Jim Chindale, contacted the Montana Standard. Jim, it turned out, was in possession of Michael's old school trunk, which Michael had left in Jim's basement. Inside the trunk, Jim had found newspaper clippings that Michael had apparently kept for all those six years that he was incarcerated about himself and Ted and the murders. Now, I'm not sure what to make of that, and I'm not sure what all of this says about Michael Horvath. While researching this segment, I came across a 2005 article from the Montana Standard titled, Donnie Dare Keeps Program Alive. 
It detailed how Officer Donald Davis, then age 52, had volunteered time and money to keep Butte's D.A.R.E. program afloat after the money earmarked for the program was diverted to put resource officers in schools, which had become commonplace following the events at Columbine. And his fellow officers had nicknamed him Donnie Dare. In the article, Officer Don admitted the D.A.R.E. program had its shortcomings, and that he had arrested former students for things like underage drinking while the other cops teased him that, you know, there goes another one of your graduates. To Officer Don, the D.A.R.E. program wasn't so much about an unrealistic vision of keeping all kids away from drugs, but it was there to teach them about consequences and about self-esteem. And his stories, and not just the ones used to capture the attention of a group of feckless youths, but all the stories and the time that he shared with us. I don't know. I can say that I remember him, and I can say that I liked him, and, I mean, what else can we really say about a person? Officer Don died on November 15th of 2019.